gloomy, mostly Euclidean confines of Castle Gormagon, upon the lofty wind-blasted heights of the Plateau of Lang, I am Confucius the Ecumenical Volgi, and this is Radio Gormagon. All right. Welcome to Radio Gormagon. Today we have Dr. J and one of our guests, Minions, Dorothy from Twitter. So everyone can introduce themselves. Hello, I'm Dorothy. Hello, Dr. J. And so today's topic is going to be uh, talking about uh, streaming platforms and broadcast TV, kind of where those are, and then maybe we'll touch on some of our favorite shows in each one of those. And maybe talk about some influences that we have and maybe some desires about where we see both the platforms going as well as some of the shows. So I'll kick it out there by throwing open the question, where do you think we stand uh, entertainment-wise between the streaming platforms and broadcasts? Is streaming really taking over or is there there a uh, lack of distinction growing between streaming and broadcast TV? I think that streaming is starting to take over because my 70-year-old parents have cut the cord with cable and now only use streaming. They have Amazon Prime, they have Ubi or Tubi, something like it. I've never heard of it. Um, and now they have access to my Disney Plus and that's all they watch now. Yeah, I would tend to agree. I think we're beginning to move away from cable. The um, cable companies have a monopoly on um, having hundreds of stations. Uh, and honestly, in our household, we watch probably six or seven stations. Um, we'll watch a little bit of local news. We'll watch Fox News Channel, Food Network, uh, BBC America, and the public station. And that probably is the, and the CW station. How could I forget? As far as what we watch, as far as television goes uh, from the cable networks. We started off with Amazon Prime when we realized that it came with Amazon Prime. And then the kids were lobbying for Netflix. So we said, fine, we'll get Netflix. And my wife and the kids will watch 90% of their viewing comes from those stations, uh, from, the, from Netflix and from and from Amazon Prime. And then when Disney Plus came out, it was just a seismic shift. I almost have to cut it off with the, with the kiddos because um, they're reliving their childhoods and they're still children. My daughter, the first thing that she watched, and she's 16, uh, 17 now, was um, her favorite episode of uh, the Mickey Mouse Club. And then uh, proceeded to then watch a whole bunch of other things on uh, Disney Plus. So I think that we're moving away because when you're paying $200 a month for cable for four stations, you know, it's a really serious consideration to get rid of an antenna network and get rid of everything but antenna service. And, uh, and I, th I think if I could convince Mrs. Dr. J that we could find the food network somewhere, I would be able to convince her to cut the cable cord altogether. You know, kind of the last part of my question, I, I kind of hinted at where I think. I think it's starting to blur. I think NBC and CBS have, and, and I think ABC now, has streaming channels of their own. And I got totally hooked on uh, the NBC one is, is free. I have it on an app on one of my uh, smart TVs. And I'm finding old shows like The Six Million Dollar Man and The Bionic Woman 
on there from way back and uh, reliving my life. I mean, it's like Disney Plus for me in that I'm going back and watching the shows that I grew up on through these platforms. So it's to that degree, I, I think we're blurring the lines between the streaming platforms and the broadcast stations are, I think, evolving into the future, which I think is streaming. Yeah, and I think you're finding much better programming on uh, the streaming channels, whether it's streaming CBS or it's streaming uh, Netflix, because the creators of the shows can create they can create a story and they can tell it from the beginning to the end and they can use however many episodes they need to tell that story, which is a lot like what goes on with BBC and a lot like what goes on in England. You know, the networks traditionally have 26 episode seasons for whatever they're doing. And a lot of that has to do with syndication and selling shows to Europe. But, you know, it's a real slog to be dedicated to a show that has 26 episodes where 10 of them are, you know, filler that really don't lend towards the story arc. And for a long time, we didn't have story arcs in American television. And um, over time, you know, TV shows began to have a season-long storyline. Uh, and, and with that, I think economy of storytelling became more important. And I think that's one of the reasons that the streaming platforms have taken off is because they're not beholden to the old network rules. I would agree with all of that. It's nice to be able to watch things when I want to. It's nice that the stories are more concise. You, again, the filler episodes sometimes get annoying. It's like, you left me on a cliffhanger last episode, and this one you're off doing something else. Come on, get back to the, get back to the main story. Stop with the nonsense. But the other side of that, um, speaking of the BBC, is sometimes they will go two or three years in between seasons, and I think people don't really like that. They don't like that either. I mean, people are have already, for example, The Mandalorian, as soon as a season dropped, people are like, well, when's the, when's the next season coming out? And they just announced, well, it's going to be October this year. Well, that's great because now we've got something to look forward to. But it's, it's this weird um, blend between being, being okay with the story being however, however long, but still expecting that story to come out every year at the same time. I don't think that people are accustomed to the to the streaming and the networks are still trying to figure that out too. But I do agree that the content on the streaming platforms is much better. Like there are shows like Bosch on Amazon Prime, which is a great show. And I don't know that anyone other than a cable network like HBO or Showtime would have made that show. Yeah, totally agree that that you're seeing, a I think, a, a better diversity of shows on the streaming platforms. Um, and and I would theorize that it's a lower barrier for entry for the creators of those to sell it into streaming platforms who are hungry for content. I mean, uh, a couple months ago, uh, maybe mid last year, there was a there was a serious concern that Netflix uh, content was going to dry up because of Disney Plus launching and pulling all the Marvel content. Um, off of that platform. I mean, Netflix is going strong. You look at, you know, the number of mentions, shout outs that it got last night on the Oscars. You look at some of the shows that they got that I think a number of us are fans of, like the Umbrella Academy. I give you the Umbrella Academy. Is just a fabulous show that uh, I don't know whether 
any of the broadcast stations would take a chance on a show like that. It's, it's so different. Everything about our family is insane. And, and that's what I really like seeing. Often on Twitter, I, I grind my axe on that there's no originality or very little originality coming out of Hollywood. I mean, to, to kind of bash on it, why do we have three incarnations of Spider-Man? I mean, can't we, like, isn't that done? Can, and, and same, I would argue, same with the whole Batman series. Like, can we, there's a plenty of other superheroes in the DC universe um, that they could pull from. Similarly with uh, science fiction content, you're starting to see shows like The Expanse and uh, BSG, the, the relaunch, I think was a real pioneer in this, but some real pioneering kind of sci-fi shows are able to launch into these platforms and, and open up that diversity. I think you're also absolutely right with that, um, that there's, a, there's always been a temptation with Hollywood to play it safe. Um, and there's an entire Wikipedia page dedicated to twin movies that came out within several months of each other. I mean, the biggest example I think of is Armageddon and Deep Impact. I mean, you know, one's a hideously deformed twin of the other, but they're twins nonetheless. It's kind of like Danny DeVito and Arnold Schwarzenegger, and you can pick which one is which with those two movies. But, uh, you know, I think that while Hollywood, mainstream Hollywood is trying to play things safe, uh, I think that one of the nice things is that because of something like the streaming platform, uh, the uh, content creators are able to put something out there. And if it goes viral or it goes crazy and people absolutely fall in love with it, it's a great success. And if it just sits there and festers, it festers. But the most interesting thing I've seen is that there's been a couple of movies. I haven't gotten around to them on Netflix, but the, uh, the two popes, and um, the Irishman. And what they both have in common is that they played for one weekend in one movie theater before the end of 2019 so they, they could get nominated for Oscars because they're really good content, really good stuff. And uh, I don't have to wait for it to come out um, just because I happen to miss it in the theater. It's, it's out right now, and their plan is to go straight to Netflix. And I also I kind of worry about what's going to happen with movie theaters with the streaming services because I went to see 1917 with the little med student and Mrs. Dr. J. And I think we dropped $45 on tickets. Yes. We had reclining seats. Yes. We had 30 minutes of previews before the movie. You know, I could buy the Blu-ray for, or download the, uh, the movie on Apple TV for 20 bucks. And I've got a nice rec room sitting behind me that I can watch it in. Uh, so why would I want to, you know, pay all that money for the movie theater just for so I could see it a few months sooner. Uh, I missed the Last Jedi in the theater. I wasn't bra- that wasn't breaking my heart that I was missing that. I missed Solo in the movie theater just because I just did not have that activation energy to watch them. Um, and when I saw Last Jedi on uh, Apple TV, I was like, I paid for this. But that's another story. I do think that you, that Hollywood is playing it safe, and I do think that we're going to see them probably play it. They're either, they're going to go two ways. They're going to either play it even more safe. So we're going to see more reboots and more sequels, or you're going to start to see people doing really original stories. Like 1917 was an original story. And if it wasn't for the fact that the director who he is um, and some of the bigger names that he had behind him, because Colin Firth was in it, Mark Strong, Benedict Cumberbatch, with those names in it, that movie could get made. Um, But I don't think that we're going to see like the indie films that, 
that we hope will get made. I, and if we do, I think we'll see Amazon or Netflix or someone else pick it up and they'll stream it. Um, and then you're only going to have the big blockbuster films like the Marvel Studios will probably, you know, make comic book movies from now until we're all, our grandchildren are dead because they just have so much content they can pull from. But people will still go see those in theaters and they may not see those smaller films. They'll wait for them to come out on streaming and then save themselves that $45 or by the time, you know, the future, it's $45 a person to get into a movie theater and that movie had better be amazing for $45 a person. So, so let me pull that thread for a second. You, you made the comment that Marvel will go on for essentially decades because they have so much content to pull from. So abstracted a little bit, right? The, the comic books seem to be working as, a, as source material, um, both arguably better for Marvel than DC um, in some respects, but, but nonetheless, both of them are sourcing it from, from comic books. <clears throat> a number of the graphic novels movies um, are doing well. Why is it that your more traditional novels, whether it be short stories or novellas or whatever you want to term them, aren't being translated into successful movies? I mean, I can think of a number of book series growing up. I, you know, one could argue that, that the whole Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit series was overdue in being done. I mean, it was rich material just sitting there waiting for somebody to do it. And thankfully, Peter Jackson did an incredible job with them. But uh, I probably could name 10 books off the top of my head, whether it's the Amber series from Roger Zelazny or um, uh, some of the other long-running sci-fi series, uh, all the way over into like the Hornblower series from uh, British naval late 1700, early 1800 sailing you know, the uh, Master and Commander was done, but that was a one-shot movie in that genre, and we never really have seen it uh, done as a, as a set of movies. So I'm wondering if you guys have a thought on source material. Yeah, I think the big challenge with books as source material is that we're becoming more and more of a woefully illiterate society. The, the number of great books out there um, to translate into film – um, are legion, but the problem is is that the books that you've read, Gort, and the books that I've read um, are very different books. Uh, I would love to see Niebla by uh, Miguel de Unamuno transformed into a total acid trip of a short movie, a 90-minute movie, but people have never heard of it. Um, there have been a few um, adaptations of a short story called Carmilla, which is one of the first vampire stories. It predates Dracula. Uh, that was a that was a story I loved. Uh, the BBC did a couple miniseries where uh, they did the Woman in White and the Moonstone over the last few years, which were a couple of mystery stories by Wilkie Collins. Uh, absolutely, I've adored those those stories. And you're probably looking at me like, what the hell are these books? Because you've never heard of them. And then, I mean, you and I have both read Lord of the Rings. Um, we've we've read The Hobbit. There are certain thing books that. A lot of people have read and they'd catch on. I mean, I thought the Narnia movies would have caught on. But the problem is, is that there are four good books and three stinkers. Uh, and it's very hard to make people pay and slog through three stinkers to just to get to the last battle. So, so I think that's one of the challenges with translating. And as far as 
um, the Marvel DC thing, I really want to touch on this because I'm a total comic books geek, is that um, Marvel did a great job in the movie realm uh, because they had John Favreau. And I mean, he knows the source material. He breathes the source material. He loves, loves, loves the source material. And he had, he had, Iron Man to work with for Pete's sake. I am Iron Man. And he was able to turn Iron Man into a really great, really fun movie. And then, so that kind of caught on and ultimately got the wheel turning to lead to the MCU. Now, Warner Brothers, who has the rights to DC, they're absolutely killing it on TV. They're absolutely killing it with their uh, straight-to-video content. All of their animated short movies um, animated movies have been absolutely phenomenal translations of some of the great the graphic novels. The Killing Joke was wonderful. Um, other than who they picked for the voice actor, uh, The Dark Knight Returns, part one and part two, great stuff. But when it comes to actually the big screen, they can't make up their they can't make up their mind where they went. I mean, Zach Zach Snyder, um, dark and broody Superman. I don't think so. And so, and then when he tried to do Batman versus Superman and tried to mash up Death of Superman with The Dark Knight Returns uh, with, I don't know what the heck else he was trying to cram everything in and then have the guy from Facebook as the villain. Uh, I mean, it, it just doesn't work. It absolutely doesn't work. And so it was just really the showrunners that can make or break these things. And I think if, I know we talked about reboots, but I think if one more time, just like communism, uh, DC might be able to get it right in the theaters, but they have done a great job with uh, the CW verse and with their and even with their streaming content. Um, Titans is a little weird, but good. The Doom Patrol was just a lot of fun, and I'm gonna pour one out for the Swamp Thing because it didn't work out. So <laughs> we're getting into into. In, I'm also a huge comic book nerd person, especially for the movies. I agree with you. DC has all of this content. They don't look at it. Marvel, I think, is doing better because they went into it with a plan. If you go back and look at some of the movies and look at some of the um, behind the scenes stuff, they mention all the Easter eggs. Like they mention Easter eggs that don't pay off for like three films. They've had this overarching idea of where they wanted to go and they're, they're steering the ship right there in that direction. Um, the other thing is I think the reason that comic book movies are, are really taking off is they're easy. You don't have to do a storyboard. Your storyboard's right there. They said that when um, Taika Waititi was doing Ragnarok, he was reading the Jane Thor comic, and he went back to Marvel and said, I want to do this. And they said, okay, sure. So that's why Thor 4 is going to be Love and Thunder. It's actually going to have Jane Thor in it because Taika Waititi was filming a Thor movie and reading the comic books and seeing how he could do this right as he's filming Ragnarok. I think it makes it, it's just that much faster. It's like, if you want somebody to do this movie, it's like, okay, I'm going to pull these three stories. Here's the, the 15 comics that cover it. Go read them and then come back to me and see how we can put this together as a screenwriter. Yeah, completely agree with, with all of that. It, it's you know, Dr. J's first point around the types of books that are successful versus not in reading styles. I, I, I still believe that there are interesting and good books that are out there that still come out. I mean, you look at uh, the three body problem um, and, and series like that that are coming out. One that that's, I 
think coming out in 2020, I think it's release day keeps getting pushed, is the series, I'm going to have to look it up here while, while you guys talk. You know, another example of graphic novels done well, again, is the Umbrella Academy, right? That's based on a graphic novel. Um, you know, and I, I really, really can't wait for season two of that. Me too. I, I really loved it. I, I only checked it out because Gerard Way wrote the comic and he is the lead singer for My Chemical Romance, which is one of my favorite bands. So it was kind of one of those, okay, he's kind of weird and quirky. This is going to be weird and quirky. And it really was, but it's, it's also got a lot of heart too, which really, really sold me on it keep losing my train of thought you guys talk about things and in the middle of it I'm like oh yeah that's really good that's really good I need to write to, I need to take notes so I don't forget the next time it's my turn to talk yeah you wonder why uh debaters on stage have notepads they're making notes all the time I I remembered it it's the Artemis Fowl series by um Owen Coffer or Colfer and and it follows a kid who's like I think he's 12 years old in the first novel and there's this whole fairy world that exists that we're relatively unaware of that he stumbles into into in some of his nefarious criminal activities and and the books just sucked me in and granted they were written for like 12 year olds to read and one of my kids had picked it up and and you know I needed a book at the beach one time I picked it up and it's it just sucked me in it was such a good story you know kind of in the vein of um you know, a modern day Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn, where it's it's this child adventure type setting um, that I think draws in the adolescent reader. Um, and still, you know, for a 50-year-old like myself, I still get sucked into this. What I was going to say is that there are also books that as much as you want them to translate into movies, they can never be properly translated into a movie. Um, I'm looking forward, but I'm also very fearful of Dune coming out soon um i was it's my one of my favorite novels of all time and lynch got the art design properly uh but he did not get the story the story they had to take a lot of liberties to fit it into two hours but you know he totally nailed the art design um i would love to go to an alternate reality where i could see the yodorovsky version of dune as bizarre as that would be because <clears throat> that sounded like a good time but it'll be interesting to see the version coming out. And they were going to do a story about the Benny Gesserit Academy uh, that was going to be on Netflix or Amazon Prime or something. One of my friends uh, from high school is uh, one of the was one of the producers, and then that got that got kiboshed. That uh, just didn't make it. So that's unfortunate. But I just think there are certain movies, things that can't you can't translate to a movie. I'm, I love uh, Neil Stevenson, one of my favorite authors. But his books are so complex that I don't think you could do a movie that could do them justice. Now, maybe streaming would allow a miniseries that could tell some of these books justice. Uh, I think Dodo would be a fun entry point for people, uh, one of his newer novels. But uh, I think Cryptonomicon, as amazing as that book was, was really a book of its time. And it's the 90s and the 40s. And trying to get a movie that, oh, I want to watch a movie about the 90s, is not going to be really that appealing to a lot of people. So Artemis Fowl is very near and dear to youngest heart. And every single thing he's seen, he has given it all the side eye. He is, 
the child is very skeptical about this. Um, we'll go see it, but he's he's very hesitant about it being successful. I am looking forward to Dune. I think the casting is kind of interesting. Um, I'm waiting for more footage, maybe solid trailers to come out before I can really say. Um, and I actually have two book series that I've always thought would translate well. Um, and one of them actually was optioned by Peter Jackson, but he relinquished rights a few years ago. And it's by it's a series by Naomi Novik. And it's set during the Napoleonic Wars, except there are dragons and the dragons are the Air Force. So it's a very cool series. Um, it's sort of the, the, the main character is basically Russell Crowe and Master and Commander. Um, there's a dragon, of course. And in my mind, whenever I'm reading this, I can just hear um, Hugh Jackman voice Temeraire, which is the, the main dragon character in the series. And the other one that I would really love to see um, is the president's vampire. So back after Abraham Lincoln is assassinated, they discover a vampire and using Marie Laveau and her voodoo magic, they blood oath the vampire to the president of the United States. So it's sort of, it's the stories that reminds you a bit of like Hellboy where he's fighting the dark. Well, in, in this case, Nathaniel Cade, which is the name of the, the vampire is basically Superman, except he's a vampire who does not partake of human blood. He drinks pig blood. Um, and he has all of these adventures. Like there's, there's this bad guy that is amazing. He, it was a Nazi and is doing all of these things with on experiments on people and doing things to prolong human life and bring back the lizard people and it's just it's so good and i every book i've i probably have reread every book like six times and i can just see them happening in front of me i i completely agree that i'm a little skeptical about movies when they take on a book that that i find very special like like artemis fowl AMC or Bravo did a Hornblower series um, starring Owen Grifford. It's a Welsh name. I'm totally botching it. it. And it was totally well done. They did, I think, six episodes or eight episodes that were each probably about 90 minutes. And, and I actually thought with the investment they made into the scenes and the set design and the, the actual boats that they used, um, that it would have continued. Uh, given that amount, I was just looking. Um, you know, Artemis Fowl is is going to be it's a Disney property with Kenneth Bernard directing. So I I think it has a lot of promise uh, for being successful. I think I think they'll do a good job on it. Even with uh, big name directors, uh, sometimes things just lay a turkey, uh, lay an egg, or lay something. But uh, I'm thinking of the uh, uh, the the Wrinkle in Time. Uh, when we were flying to Australia last summer, uh, it was on the airplane. It, it kind of just moved to video at that point. And it was one of my favorite childhood stories. Um, truth be told, Swiftly Tilting Planet, the third book in the series, is really one of my childhood favorite stories. Uh, but because it's, it's, it's kind of like Quantum Leap before there ever was a quantum leap where one of the main characters goes back in time and corrects the bad decision of every descent of every ancestor along the way in order to basically fix the timeline. And it's a really, really neat story, but 
Wrinkle in Time, uh, the director that they got for it, um, Anna DuVernay, she it, she made it just too woke and really just made it not a fun movie. Um, and there was a lot of decisions she made that were very distracting from, you know, my childhood mind's eye of how I pictured the story was going to be. Hello, children. Hello. It's your lovable and inscrutable Mandarin here today for the Northwood Sushi Bar. Oh, baby. Northwood Sushi Bar has the best in local sashimi, from bluegill to musky to perch and pumpkin seed. In lieu of pickled ginger, enjoy an old-world spread of cottage cheese and beets. Try the elegant hand rolls of vinegar-soaked crappie, served with a head of lettuce and a tomato wedge. Or have Chef Cab whip you up a one-of-a-kind treat. Obey me. Just like he does for your Mandarin. Such favorites as the Udagarami roll, Hadaka Jimmy, served three ways, and that old family favorite, the boot to the gut. As always, obey me and enjoy the Northwood Sushi Bar. Well, speaking of, of movies that wreck it from it, uh, I'm a big Jack Reacher fan. They're great. Uh, Lee Child novels that are essentially kind of throwaway novels. Um, they're great for like plane rides and where you have a couple hours to kill and you can kind of pour through the paperback. And almost to a T, every single one of the novels starts out describing that Jack Reacher is this almost mountain of a man that he's, you know, six something feet tall. He's 200 plus pounds. He's just like this brick of a man that's that's built with this stare. And then they go and they cast Tom Cruise as Jack Reacher. And there's a few of us that are you know, avid Jack Reacher fans, friends of mine from college on Facebook, we still bemoan it. I mean, the movies were fine, but it wasn't Jack Reacher. You know, if if you could have replaced almost any other name, the movie would have been fine, but definitely didn't measure up to my mind's eye of that character, given the description and how important that was for the author. I agree with you. That was really disappointing to have Tom Cruise play Jack Reacher. There's a, there's in the first movie, there's a speech that he gives while he's on the phone with the, the villain. And it was like, you're almost there, Tom. You're almost there, but you don't look like Dolph Lundgren. Don't have the physical presence that Jack, they're supposed to be rebooting it. They're actually moving away from the movies. And I think Amazon is doing a Jack Reacher series and they're recasting the role, which of course they're going to have to because Tom Cruise isn't going to do that much work. Um, so I'm excited to see who they get for Jack Reacher, but he needs to be a giant of a person. Like I always thought when they were casting that, uh, I settled on the name of Henry Caviezel. I thought that he could bulk up a little bit but he was kind of that, he has that intimidating look. I think he has the right um, kind of perception around how he looks that I thought he would be a great cast as a Jack Reacher. I don't Henry think that's Cavill, a bad cast. Henry Cavill or Jim Caviezel? Sorry, kind of Jim merge Caviezel. Them. Or merge them, both of them. <laughs> I mean, you could do that with CGI. Um, why couldn't they just bulk up and stretch out Tom Cruise? with uh, CGI. I mean, we, we were able to make some hobbits out of normal-sized people. And so if we were able to make some hobbits, I mean, there's no reason why you couldn't, like, it just turn Tom Cruise into Jack Reacher. They could have. They could have played with, with camera angles and made him look taller than is. That would be a hell of an angle. <laughs> so shooting him from his knees and trying to get to the right height. Got a few minutes left here. I, I came up with an idea kind of on the fly here. Um, We'll see how it goes. Um, hopefully it'll work. Uh, I'm going to kind of do a lightning round. So I'll give a category 
and you give me an answer with a brief maybe reasoning or description if it's something that might not be as mainstream and and we'll go through a a list of these things you guys ready sure ready favorite science fiction show on streaming or tv in the last 10 years i would have to go probably with picard uh i'm watching it right now and anything that sticks a a thumb in the eye of gene roddenberry's utopian vision is a whole lot of fun and while they're talking in their press releases about how um this is like thumbing their nose at trump and thumbing their nose at you know modern conservatism or whatever it is um they really just they're kind of overplaying their hand because i as a kind of a conservatarian absolutely adore the show absolutely adored the show because the big MacGuffin in this story, and it really doesn't spoil anything, is that, you know, the reason why Picard retired was that he wanted to help save the Romulans uh, when their star was going Nova back in the uh, J.J. Abrams movie. But a whole bunch of things went wrong and he still wanted to try to help. And Starfleet said, no, because they're Romulans. And like I said, that doesn't spoil anything about the plot, but it just kind of shows you, okay, well, these supposedly perfect people are the farthest thing from perfect. And it gave me something to chuckle about. Oh, my favorite show for the last tough. But I think I'm going to go with the my gut answer, which is Lost in Space, because that it's just so good. And the second season, I did not think it could be better than the first. Proved me wrong. Um, that family is a family. And I don't know how they achieved that magic, but you can feel it. Feel that they all like each other and they all want to hang out and they want to be together and do these scenes together. Um, I'm looking forward to season three. I haven't heard of a release date or if there is going to be three, but the way that they ended it, there has to be. So I'll answer my own question. That's not offensive. I'm going to go with The Expanse as my favorite sci-fi show in the last 10 years. Uh, It is a classic science fiction, space science fiction done really well with uh, small details that they they paid attention to. Like, for example, the ships have to decelerate by turning around and firing um, thrust in order to slow them down against A, their inertia, and B, uh, gravity draws from from planets. I mean, the small details are what make that show really well done. In addition to the ability where they have multiple story arcs that they interwove, it almost feels, you know, it's always talked about Babylon 5 had that long range, right? He had the whole story locked in a safe um, and a whole plan. Uh, but I think the, you know, the people doing The Expanse really have a great idea for the story arcs that have unfolded over, uh, whatever it is now, the four, four seasons, three seasons, um, that have just made it really good. Um, okay, next question. Uh, your favorite reboot show, so not movie, but your favorite reboot show where You know, it could be a rehash of an old 70s TV show. It could be um, Dorothy could double dip and put Lost in Space again as a reboot. Um, But your favorite reboot show uh, and no time limits on the question. Okay, so I'm not going to double dip, but I totally could because I did love the old Lost in Space and the new one still has that same quirky feel. Um, It's not a direct reboot, but I really enjoy 911, which is, in my opinion, it's sort of a reboot of emergency because some of the calls that they've had on 911 have have been actual 911 calls. And emergency had that same sort of reality feel without it being reality. And I think 911 does that really well too. All right. So for me, as far as reboots go, 
I'm having trouble thinking of too many reboots that I've watched, but I would probably say uh, the Battlestar Galactica reboot. Uh, that was when it was being broadcast on the Sci-Fi Channel. That was uh, Destination Television for Mrs. Doctor J and I. She really really and she's not a big sci-fi person uh so i mean i think the fact that it was something we watched together and i think that it was it turned the stories over on their ear while still respecting the history i think probably my favorite yeah i think i'm gonna have to do a plus one for doc's answer uh, bsg really uh did a good job of staying true to the universe that it was in but uh spinning it a little differently than the old uh original battlestar galactica with uh, Lauren Green and all. One more question: What what is your most anticipated show that's coming as far as like the next season? So we've talked about a few, and I'm open if you want to give me a ranking of your top three that that's kind of on your docket for when they come out. You're gonna just lock away the world, uh, hunker down with your pets, and uh, and like that Portlandia episode, get fired from your job because you're binge watching. Why don't we watch this Battlestar Galactica DVD I just got? Season one. Okay, one, I haven't seen Battlestar Galactica. It's on my list. I, I saw the face. I see the face from both of you. It's just, I haven't, I had too many other things that I was watching at that time and I never could get back to it. And it's on my list of things to watch, but there have been so many new shows coming out that it's impossible to go back. What? What? That's the last one. <laughs> Um, and for my most anticipated show um, for their upcoming seasons would be Kingdom, which is a South Korean show set in ancient Korea where there's zombies. And it's not necessarily the zombies. It's There's palace intrigue. There's like a disgraced prince. There's this mysterious mercenary kind of guy. Um, yes, it's sub subtitled, but it's so well done. The production value is amazing. Um, of course, season two of Mandalorian, because I I love that show. I love a space western. Um, season three of Lost in Space, and then season two of The Umbrella Academy. Get up. We're going. Where? Save the world. Oh, is that all? Okay, so I'm going to leave the streaming platform for one of my answers. Uh, my wife and I watch a lot of the uh, British history type stories, so we're looking forward to the next season of Victoria, if and when it comes out. Uh, we've been absolutely addicted to that show, and that's just one that <clears throat> we love because we just love the Victorian era his, from a history standpoint, and we've really enjoyed um, uh, Clara from Doctor Who. Her name is just not coming to me off the top of my head right this second. Um, she's just fabulous. Uh, I'm going to go with Dorothy on Mandalorian Season 2. Um, yes, it, it, it's a lot of fun. Uh, it really is one of the best things that's come out it, from a Star Wars standpoint since the Clone Wars. Um, cartoon series. So it, 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 I thought it was gonna, I thought it was going to be dumb. I mean, I, I, I tuned in. I'm like, this is going to be lame. It's like some Boba Fett wannabe walking around a desert with a gun, killing people. And then boom, baby Yoda. And the whole, it's a, it's a you know, father-son story. So uh, I, I can't wait to see what happens next on that, sh on that show. And then I think the third one for me is going to be The Clone Wars uh, Season 7. Uh, the Clone Wars was the only thing good to have come out of the prequels. Uh, it really did a, a really great job storytelling. And there was a point in the third or fourth season where, probably the second season even, where 
some reviewer said, we've gotten to the point where there is more Clone Wars than there is movies. And it, it just, it was some pretty good storytelling. And my son is binge watching on Disney Plus seasons one through six to get ready so that we can actually sit and watch season seven together. Uh, so I think that's going to be the other show that I'm forward to. I think mine are, I think Umbrella Academy is top of my list, uh, Lost in Space, and then hmm, kind of struggling with the with a third. Um, and now, admittedly, uh, I haven't started Mandalorian. It's on my list, so I might get really sucked into that. And I'm uh, trepidatious about Picard and, um, you know, I, I bought into uh, Star Trek Discovery the first season, but I wasn't quite sold on it. And all my friends are saying that the second season is really good. So I'm, I might have to go and uh, invest in seeing that. The second season is really good. Is it? Yes, it's really good. But Picard's even better. Um, like I said, mostly because I just love seeing, you know, the corrupt federation. Uh, probably I'm a closet Ferengi or something. So nice. And a show I forgot to mention, The Boys. Oh, good call. So subversive. It's just that first thing. <laughs> That first season, <laughs> I was thinking about it because I, I had a long drive this week and I was thinking about that show and how that sort of to peek into what Hollywood is probably really like because <laughs> the superheroes are very much celebrity and they do all of these things to hide exactly what ter how terrible a person they are inside and keep them all shiny and perfect for the public. And it's a little... It reminds me of Hollywood, the old Hollywood contracts where it was almost like a morality clause. You had to be a good person. Yeah, that's a it's a great call on on boy, the boys. Uh, so bad. It's good. Uh, it's you're almost watching it cringing um, at it. OK, so I've asked a couple. Of, is, is there any question or anything that we missed here in our conversation that you guys would like to ask? I do have a question for you guys. What are you watching now? What are you watching? So uh, for me, um, I talked about it 500 times uh picard and right now i'm also watching doctor who um i'm a doctor who addict the current showrunner has not done that great a job with his stories but uh, uh the uh, actress playing the uh, 13th doctor is doing a, a very wonderful job i'm just terrible names at this point dorothy so you have to forgive me and then i'm trying desperately to catch up with the cw shows i'm woefully behind on them but i was able to catch the crisis in its entirety and the crisis uh was just absolutely something else for you know one it's the cw and two you they have five episodes to tell probably the most significant comic book story in the 20th century uh they did it justice. They absolutely did it justice. And they had a lot of fun with it by pulling footage and cameos from a lot of other live action television shows and splicing them in, even just to kill off universes. Uh, it just made it a lot of fun. So the name you're looking for, Doc, uh, is Jodie Whittaker, who plays the new uh, Doctor Who. The name's Doctor. The Doctor. Whitaker. I could not remember the last name. I was thinking Yarborough for some bizarre reason. Yep, she's excellent. I picked up on her back uh, in Broadchurch. She was the mom in the first two seasons, really, and then it turns into a social work in the third. Another great, like, little mini series, mini show uh, that if you haven't watched, Broadchurch is absolutely worth it. David Tennant just kills it in it. You trust me, don't you? Excuse me. Did you see the Americanized version of it as well? Because they rebooted the series uh, in Broadchurch. They, they redid it set in the United States, and it was on network television. And it was like a one-shot miniseries. And David Tennant played an American accent. 
and played his role again with an all-American cast. And they made some, I'm not going to spoil it, they made some little tweaks to the ending because in British television, you can give it a tough ending. Um, and so I actually watched both of them. And clearly the British version's better, but you know some of the sound made it just a little bit hard to understand some of what they were saying without the volume turned all the way up on Broadchurch. Uh, I cannot, again, cannot remember the name of the American version of it, but I'll remember it at some point after this is over. So I, when you talk about it, I remembered it, Doc, but somehow I think it was traumatic and I blocked out the American version of Broadchurch. So now I'm going to have to go and find that too and see if I watched it. But yeah, Jodie Whittaker was great in Broadchurch. She's, she, the, I'm also a Doctor Who person. Um, I stopped watching when Capaldi was Doctor just because he was so angry and, and Scottish that I couldn't. Um, there was there was no joy for me and Doctor Who. I mean, my first Doctor was Tom Baker, and even though he was snarky, there was like a mad scientist joy about him, and I did not get that with Capaldi. Um, so I do need to pick the series back up with her and give her a chance. But Capaldi, just I have to let him go. So that, those are fighting words. I'd say the battle lines have been drawn. I absolutely adored Capaldi, probably for all the reasons that you loathed him. Um, I, I first, my first Peter Capaldi exposure was when he was in Dangerous Liaisons um, and when he was the sidekick to Valmont. And then I saw a layer of the white worm where, again, he played another sidekick. Um, but I've just always, always liked his stuff. And then when he had his show on the BBC, I think, and where he was Malcolm Tucker uh, on The Thick of It, that was a lot of fun. And so I just thought he was a nice change of pace after the young uh, Matt Smith. And so while I did love Matt Smith as the doctor, um, when Peter Capaldi got the role, um, I really enjoyed his acerbic, crabby char- uh, character. Um, and I actually did think he had a nice arc, especially in his final season with uh, Bill as his companion, because I thought I wasn't going to like her. I really don't think I was going to like her. And she was probably one of my favorite companions. So I really think you should give uh, at least this, this, the last season of Capaldi a chance, because even though he's a little bit crabby, Dorit, there's a really nice multi-layered redemption arc uh, throughout it. Uh, for for him, so I've added it to my list of things to watch. And so, Grace and Grace Point was the name of the American version of Broadchurch. I'll have to throw it on my list as well. I I really love Broadchurch. It's probably the show that triggered me to go buy BritBox and add that subscription to my Amazon Prime. Um, so I am a sucker for particularly British police serials like Broadchurch. I would put into that category. Shetland with Douglas Henshaw. If you had trouble understanding Broadchurch and David Tennant, uh, you're going to have a worse time with this because it's set up in the Shetland Islands north of, like, way up in the North Sea. They were foolish to think they could live there. Absolutely great mysteries and storylines. Mysteries in the sense of a police procedurals that go on a great set of characters on the show. I finished that series and, and I started just diving through the all the recommended shows that it was throwing at me. I ended up with some weird Scandinavian one i ended up with a welsh one where they subtitled the english because they just knew that with the welsh accent it was going to be so hard for just regular english speakers uh to understand that they had to subtitle it what am i watching now so admittedly i I was never a game of thrones person 
so I am now slowly slogging through Game of Thrones, and uh, I have mixed feels about that. I am watching, I have a series that I watch, again, through BritBox called Silent Witness. Um, you know, back talking about British shows and, and their seasons, they do uh, four episodes, four I'll say episodes, and those are in air quotes. Uh, each episode is really a part one and a part two uh, that are each about an hour to an hour and 15 minutes long. Um, and so there's eight of those in a season. And it follows a team of forensic pathologists in the UK. And it has, on BritBox, it has 23 seasons. Uh, it's gone through, I've gone through two sets of major casts and we're about to turn over to another set and they just keep evolving. It's been going on for years. I, I love the first cast. Second cast is growing on me. So I watched that. Um, what's my watching? I, I fell into, uh, you know, this is the Catholic of me coming out, uh, uh, based on Chesterton's character of Father Brown doing the mysteries in World War II England guy who plays Mr. Weasley, Weasley dad, yeah. the Weasley dad, Zach C. Darthing knows where I'm going. Yeah. He plays father Brown. And I think he does a fabulous job. The characters are nice and quirky and it's light watching. I do it when I exercise. So I really don't have to think. And if I miss a little bit, it's fine. Um, that's pretty much what I'm watching now. Cause I'm all caught up on all the major shows. So it's just, just kind of hunting and pecking things and you know i think this podcast has given me a couple ones to go check out as well does BritBox have the escape artist uh i can check for you uh the um the escape artist is one that uh i watched um mrs dr j and i had a real bad bout of insomnia one night and uh we uh watched it together uh and it was a three-part series about uh, a barrister portrayed by David Tennant, who is framed for a murder. And it's about, it's about his, his story. And it, is, it incorporates British law versus Scottish law. And it's an absolutely fun show. I think you would really enjoy it. And it's uh, three episodes. Uh, so I think a few hours of your time. To, you have to uh, get it on PBS Masterpiece Channel on Amazon Prime. It's not on BritBox. Do you have access to that or do you have to pay for that one? Uh, I can do a seven-day trial. <laughs> <laughs> Line up a bunch of shows and then watch them all. <laughs> yeah. Oh, when Disney Plus dropped, I just paid for a year in advance and then I share it with my family. I knew that, I mean, the first week, the only things that I watched on television were things on Disney Plus. I had a Star Wars day. I had a Pixar day. I had a Marvel day and I just went through all of the entertainment and I'm still discovering things. Um, the other day I found DuckTales on there and gummy bears, cartoons from, you know, growing up that were amazing. Um, there's another streaming show that is interesting and it's on Netflix. And the first one that I started with was called Criminal UK and David Tennant is in it. Um, Oh, the lady that plays Agent Carter. Um, I can't remember her, her name. is escaping me. She's in it. She looks like Billy Piper in it. They could play sisters. Um, but the series, it has like three or four episodes. And it's the same set, but then they'll change countries. Like it'll be criminal France. And it's the same interrogation room. And there's different actors and actresses. Um, they, they've done one in Spain. I think there's one in Germany. That one is really good. Every story has just been amazing. And I can't wait to get through the rest of them. So Disney, speak about Disney Plus and, and what you want. So you got you to add Darkwing Duck uh, to it. 
And then I completely hit the Tron uh, set of things, the original Tron movie, the newer Tron movie, Tron Legacy, and then the Tron cartoon that was short-lived as well is all on there. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just this weird quirk that I have that I've always loved that show. The Tron uh, cartoon was a lot of fun. It, mm-hmm. It's a shame that it didn't get traction. Yep. The other uh, show that I'll throw out there is just a fun one that's, uh, I think it was on Netflix, and it was around the time I caught it when I was watching Broadchurch, I think. It's called Crossing Lines, and it was something that Dorothy said about taking place in different places. It's this special crime unit that uh, they've pulled people like the computer hackers from Germany and the the weapons specialists is from, uh, you know, the UK. And like they pulled all these characters, like one from each kind of EU country, major EU country, at least. And they have an American in it as well. Donald Sutherland is in it as the team leader, um, kind of mastermind behind the, the unit. Uh, and they go and they solve kind of serious crimes across European borders uh, and try to you know, bring them to justice at the Hague kind of thing um, called Crossing Line. Well, I think we've hit our time limit. So uh, I know that we've kicked around ideas of future podcasts. I think, um, you know, I'd be betraying three of three if I joined in, but I think you two might be setting up a like a Marvel MCU movie discussion maybe as a potential podcast. Uh, so we, we would welcome that. If you have other ideas, we always welcome it. Um, but I want to thank everyone for their time and uh, allow some, you know, a little bit of a closing statement here. Thank you guys for having me on. It's been great. Um, the Gormagons are some of my favorite people and getting a chance to talk to you guys is always a plus. Thank you so much, Dorothy, for coming on. It was a lot of fun meeting you and on here. Um, like I said, you're the first minion I've met, so this is uh, pretty exciting. A lot of fun. And I look forward to having you back at some point. Tick-tock, tick-tock. The mission did not go as planned. 